Have your eyes on scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses with people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, Westside. We're glad that you're here. And hopefully the video serves its purpose, and you're like, that's a little bit awkward, and there's a little bit of tension here, as it should. Um, as we talk about this Advent season and preparing for this, the phrase that sort of kept dropping in my heart was, so this is Christmas, right? <laughs> after 2020 and after everything's happened, we're now supposed to, like, drink eggnog. And, like, can we be honest? Do you, no one likes eggnog, okay? Like, I mean, let, let's all for a year of being honest, okay, to just sort of feel the vibe of, like, so this is what we're supposed to do now? And, and Advent, for us, as we said earlier, um, does three things. Advent means the arrival or the coming of. And so for us on, on this side of history, we, we look back to see what God has done. We, we see those Old Testament prophecies and we see it fulfilled in the birth and the arrival of Jesus Christ. But also at the same time, it allows us to look around to see what God is doing. Because Jesus said that the kingdom of God is, has arrived. It's, it's here that God is doing things. God is, is saving people. God is shattering addictions. God is restoring marriages. God is doing things now. And the reason why in the Christian tradition that there's lights and evergreen is to remind us in the darkest season that God's light shines now, that the evergreen, that his love never fails. So, so we don't just look back. 
But we also look around with an awareness. But then for us on this side of history, we also look ahead to the second coming of Jesus Christ. All right, I know you're the 11 a.m. You've already had coffee. This is a great spot for an amen. Jesus hasn't just come, but Jesus is coming again. All right, okay, we're going to go good today, all right? But we look forward to see what God will do. And this time of year is, is really unique, especially, I think, in the here and now. And, and, and a lot of things get lost this time of year. I think we've sort of bought into a bill of goods that we've been sold from sort of hallmarky type stuff. And if you've ever been to Westside, by the way, I take this time every year to rail on Hallmark movies as much as I possibly can, okay? Because they're trash, number one. Number two, he's going to make it on time, all right? He's going to, like, catch the train and walk in with the golden retriever. and Oh, it's Christmas, all right? That's every Hallmark movie, great. But there's actually um, some substance to this. There are doctrines that we believe, that, that we sing about, that we don't even realize the depths of what we're talking about. And the primary one is, is God becoming a human being, the, the virgin birth, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Um, the word in theology is incarnation. It's a big word, but so is mayonnaise. We're going to learn some stuff, okay? Um, carne means flesh, okay? So when you go to your favorite Mexican restaurant and you order three tacos, carne asada, and all of God's people said, amen. Right, that's flesh, that's meat, okay? So what's the definition? The incarnation is the union of divinity and humanity in the God-man Jesus Christ. It is not that Jesus became less God when he became more human. It is the hypostatic union. It is 100% God, 100% man. That is to say that the eternal Son of God became flesh. And we see this in the opening pages of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he dropped down a few verses, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we celebrate this time of year. Like, I mean, getting through your Michael Buble and all that good stuff, like there's some serious doctrine here that we're celebrating. And I would say this. I would say you don't even realize how much the culture and you see this storyline everywhere else. I mean, the next time that you go and spend money at the movie theater, think about it. What's the storyline of all great superheroes? Well, there's a problem on earth. Oh, no. What should we do? There's a damsel in distress. There's a problem. But nobody here can save us. So what we need is we need somebody from the outside. See? See what I'm doing here? We need somebody from the outside to come in and save us. You see, the human heart longs for a story like this. That's why this time of year just, just sort of does something to us. But as I was thinking about it in retrospect and looking at what 2020 has been, and, and just by the way, for, for some of you, 2020 has been a great year. And, and listen, you should not feel ashamed of that, by the way. You should not like, oh, this has actually been a good year for me. Okay, that's, praise God for that, all right? I, I sort of did just an informal Facebook poll and just asked people, what was difficult about 2020 for you? And I didn't realize the responses that I would get. I mean, from um, distrust, I don't know what to trust, who to trust, what information, disease, death, distance of family, division within the country and within my own family. People just poured on and just said, it's been so hard in so many different areas. 
And as I was thinking about this time of year and preparing for Advent, I'll be honest with you. Um, I had a question. And it's, it's a really honest question, okay? So God forbid we come to church and we're honest, and God forbid the preacher be honest as well, okay? But this was the question. Thinking about the incarnation, the union of divinity and humanity, and Mary, Mary, and, and all of this stuff, this was the question. Why would God want to come here? I mean, like, anybody looked around recently? Like, I'm all for going to where God is. All right, that'd be great. Right? And by the way, by the way, that's coming later on in the story, right? That's actually a part of our story as Christians. We believe that God's going to do that, and that's going to be awesome. But this year, I could not get past this question. Why, God, would you want to come here with the division, with the disease, with the death, with all of that? And I ran across a very interesting article that was published in the New York Times and in the article, um, it talks about everything that is happening um, over in a country called Yemen. And, and as I was reading it, a thought sort of just popped up in my heart. And it really is what Advent is all about. You see, Advent forces us to face the darkness of this fallen world. That's what I love about Christianity, by the way. It's actually one of the compelling reasons why I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible. Um, because the Bible is brutally honest about the human condition, and about the people in the Bible. Like, if I was going to create a cult or, like, write a Bible or something, I'm not writing about my own sins. I'm not writing about my failures. But the Bible is totally okay with talking about all of these broken people who have all of these problems, but yet God's still loving them. You see, Christianity is a realist faith. It's not some pie-in-the-sky type of mindset. It faces and forces the darkness of the human condition. And by the way, even in 2020, we don't know what to do with this. So we try to blame, like, well, it's, you know, this president or that election or this, that, right? Or it's or this or that or the problem is, right? We, we want to place the blame somewhere. Advent forces us to face the darkness, but then this. It also forces us to face the depth of God's love for it. And that's the tension. That's what Advent does. We stand in the gap and we go, it is a dark, broken, fallen world. Something is wrong. But at the same time, we see a God who loves his creation, who has come to be a part of it at the same time. And as I was reading this article, um, it was published in 2017, about Yemen. If you don't know, Yemen has been within a civil war within itself for a number of years. And it would do good for us as Americans to know that there is an entire world out there that is suffering from other things, from poverty, from disease. This is, by the way, one of the most dangerous places in a no-fly zone that you can go to. But the article interviews a man by the name of Jacob. Jacob served in the military of Yemen and hadn't been paid for two years. The New York Times article writer was out front of a clinic where they would distribute a little bit amount of food and a little bit amount of vaccine for only a few hours while supplies last. Jacob was holding his six-year-old daughter who was days away from dying of malnutrition. He had been in the line for hours. And when they asked him what he was doing there, Jacob said this, we're just waiting for doom or for a breakthrough from heaven. Oh, Jacob's honest. And when I read that, I thought, that's Advent. That's what we're waiting for. 
I mean, you feel it. You feel the angst. You feel the fear. Maybe you felt this at some stage in your life. Maybe it was your marriage. Maybe it was your finances. Maybe it was the addiction. But you thought, I'm either waiting for doom or I'm waiting for a breakthrough from heaven. This is what this time of year does. It arouses our senses to something bigger than us. And this is a great line to lead us into what is the guiding question over these next couple of weeks. We're asking this question, why would God want to come here? And they're going to look at the pages of Scripture to answer that question. And I love what Jacob said about doom or a breakthrough from heaven, because that's actually how our Bible verses start today. You see, there's the very first verse in your Bible that says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, at Westside, we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. That was such a weak one. I'll give you another go at it, okay? We believe at Westside that every word in the Bible is inspired by God. And when it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, it's giving us a massive context for what's going on. We know about King Uzziah. King Uzziah ruled and reigned in Israel for about 25 to 27 years. We don't know anything about that because we have elections. Boy, I got, I got a ton of jokes, but I'm going to stop. The Holy Spirit is going to reserve it right now. Okay, and, and, and under his rule and kingship, Israel was extremely prosperous. So imagine when this king dies, there is all types of uncertainty. And by the way, back in ancient times, if you didn't have a king sitting on a throne, another country thought it was a great time to come in and sit on that throne. So there's political unrest, there's economic unrest, there's so much that's going on. And the irony in the passage is, is that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Well, King Uzziah sat on a throne, but the earthly throne is vacant and void. But in the midst of that, Isaiah sees God sitting on the throne. And then there's these angelic hosts, the seraphim. These guys are legit. They're like ninja angels in the Old Testament. If you see a seraphim, something is about to go down, okay? And we know what they're saying. And Revelation says that they say this day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In the original language, this is called the triagion. Because, like, in, in, the American, in, in, in the English language, we don't... Uh, okay, so when it says that he's holy, it doesn't just mean that he's holy. It means that he's holy. Ho it's like if you were like, oh, man, my Taco Bell is good, 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 right? By the way, nobody's ever said that. But what it is, it, it's, it's showing the, the depth of it. How, how holy is God? Well, God's not just holy. Um, God's not just holy, holy. God is holy, 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 separate, distinct in that sense. And by the way, do you know what one of the number one attributes of God is mentioned in the scriptures? I'll give you three um, guesses right here, right? Love, wrong, holy, holiness. What, why is that important to know? It means separate. It means distinct. It means high above us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his Glory. Now, a, a literal translation would say that the whole earth, may his glory fill the whole earth. If you've been at Westside for any amount of time, we've talked about glory. It's a main theme in the Bible. 
what heat is to fire, what wet is to water, what light is to a light bulb is what the glory is to God. Glory is God's manifest attributes. It's what comes from him. That's why it says Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's God's thumbprint left on everything, his creation, the oceans, the mountains, all of that. But what comes from God is glory. It is literally what exudes from him constantly all the time. And this glory is such a big deal that it says that the whole point of the earth is that it would be filled with his glory. But you know what's funny about this this passage of scripture? Most people stop at verse 6. So if you ever grew up going to church camp, right, where it's the last night of church camp, you got to go back home, and the preacher's always like, who will go for us? Here am I, send me. That's great, that's awesome. Um, But where's God sending Isaiah back to? Well, then there's this, like, judgment. And, I mean, just listen to some of these verses. And though a tenth remain, it will be burned again. Merry, Merry Christmas, right, okay? I mean, this is like doom and gloom. And then these trees, these oak trees that were there, by the way, they're going to get stripped. And all that's left is a stump. I mean, you're just like, this is destruction. This is all of this. But at the end of verse 13, God says this. The holy seed is its stump. Seed. If you know anything about the story of the Bible, that word seed is massively important. You see, it goes all the way back to Genesis. This is what's wrong with the world. We believe this, that God created everything and it was good. That's why when you stand at a graveside for a baby or for anybody, you know something's not right. That's why when you turn on the news, you go, "Mm -mm, not supposed to be this way. You're right, it's not. Because God created everything, and it was perfect, and it was good. And he created our first parents, Adam and Eve, in his image and likeness. In Genesis 2.24, it says that, Therefore a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then it says, And they were both naked and not ashamed. Or as my nephew used to say, Bucky, naked, and not ashamed. Right? What does that mean? Perfect harmony with God, with others, all of that. And then Genesis chapter 3. The great tempter comes along. And do you know what the devil says? The devil says, God wants you to have everything except this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, you know why he didn't want you to have that? Because if you have that, then you'll be like him. You see, God's holding out on you. Translation, if you obey God, you won't have any fun. Is that relevant? Anybody deal with that every single second of day of their life, right? There's no new lies. And then we see that sin entered into the world. And then God places judgment, and and he speaks to the serpent and says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You'll have a little footnote in your Bible if it says offspring or seed, and you jump down and it'll say that offspring could mean seed. Now, if we could just, if you could grant me grace and we could go to biology class, why would God say to the woman, your seed? Because we know from biology that a woman doesn't carry seed. What does this mean? Well, it gets even more specific. This seed he, what? Doesn't seem to be general anymore. We're talking about like a dude, this guy. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what we believe this to be? Theologians call it the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Jesus Christ is portrayed that God would incarnate and become a human being through the virgin birth and that God would send a hero into this story. But again, 
Why? Why would God do that? Well, we actually see whenever Charlie Brown tells about this scene at Christmas time. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel, that sounds familiar, like Isaiah chapter 6, of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. <laughs> That's my favorite line. I always love when people are always like, boy. Like, I, I grew up with these older preachers being like real mad, but they were talking about God's love, and I was real confused about it. I was like, if God loves me, why, why aren't you so mad at me? But they would always be like, boy, I hope God shows up tonight. <laughs> really? Because every time I see God show up, everybody's like, ah, I'm dead, right? And they're like, fear not. Okay, so we just need to be careful when we're like, God shows up. Ah, I'm almost dead. In the same region, the angels, the glory, the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, glory shows around them. And then the, the dial gets turned up even more and suddenly appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. Do you know how many that is? Good, because I have no idea either. Nobody really does, okay? It's a lot, okay? Now we have a ton of angels and heavenly hosts praising God and saying, what are they saying? Glory. Glory. Glory, glory, all the time, glory. God promises, I'm going to send someone, and, and it's going to be glorious, and there's going to be glory. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The theme of glory is constantly popping up. Why would God want to come here? Glory, glory, glory. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. You know what's interesting? is that the Bible tells us that actually no one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God the Father because he dwells in inapproachable light. So then what does it mean when Isaiah says that I saw the Lord? In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, listen, this will blow your mind. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah sees Jesus seated upon the throne. So, why would God want to come here? What's the point of all of this? Well, I think we can ascribe from these verses. God wants to come here to reveal His glory in Jesus Christ. And this has profound impact on our everyday life. What does it mean to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Well, I think we can see what that means when we look at what Isaiah experienced. Isaiah saw something, and something happened to Isaiah. The first thing that I see is this. God's glory shines brightest in the dark. And here's what I mean. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You, you know what all of us want? We want, I saw the Lord. I mean, come on, man. That's what I'm, I saw the Lord, this rapturous vision. This is incredible. Here's what we don't want in the year that King Uzziah died. That means that everything's gone wrong. That means we don't know what the future is. That means from politics to economy to the family conflict to all of this. I mean, can we all just agree that 2020 is the year that King, right, in this year, in this year that uh, Isaiah experienced this, 2020 seems to be this year for a lot of people. And what does this mean? Some of us are going through a dark time and a dark season. And listen, I've been in the game long enough. I've been in this game long enough to know that this time of year is some of the hardest 
Because that seat that that person sat in at the table is not going to be there this year. And it's a dark time of year, and it's hard. And I've come to bring good news. And the good news is that in your darkest moment, God's glory shines the brightest. So I don't know what you're going through in your marriage or in your family or in your job or whatever, but you feel like it is so dark. I'm here to tell you that in those moments, God's glory shines the brightest. Please don't give up. Please keep pressing in. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said, never doubt in the dark what you've once seen in the light. There is a season and seasons come and seasons go and some of us are in the middle of this season but I'm here to tell you that that season will come to an end and the dawn of God's glory will shine bright upon your life. So hold fast in this season. Hold fast in this season. The second thing that I see is this and it's real positive around Christmas time and I think this should be on your Christmas card. I think this should be great. You as a family, this should be your Christmas card. God's glory reveals our sinfulness. Merry, Merry Christmas, right? Look at what Isaiah does. He sees the Lord, and I said, woe is me. That woe is not like a Bill and Ted's excellent adventure woe, okay? That is like a sorrowful lamentation, lament. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I am unraveled at what I am seeing. By the way, this is a great question. I just feel impressed to ask this. When's the last time you've been taken to the mat by God's glory? When have you been undone by the bigness and goodness and grandness of God? That's what I see when people interact in the scriptures. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Notice the progression. Do you know what we're really good at saying? Woe is me. I hang out with a bunch of sinners, right? But that's not the order. The order is, I've seen the Lord. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. You know what God's glory is like? It's sort of like a fire. That the closer that you get to that fire, you feel the heat upon your skin and it exposes any darkness. What God's glory is, is like that, that the closer that we actually draw unto God, we, we find out a lot more about ourselves. And for some of us, that makes us uncomfortable. And, and, and this bill of goods, this idea of that you have a spark in you and that you're actually okay. And this, listen, Merry Christmas. That's wrong. Okay. There is no spark. There is none of that. Listen, the good news of this time of year is that we need saving. And we like sing it with like, like cheer and like cinnamon stuff and like all of that. We're like, we're sinners going to hell and we need saving. Fra la la la, fra la la, right? It's like we've lost the meaning of this. But what we're saying this time of year is that we need saving and that this God, this God saves us. And it tells me this, that I can only know who I am by first knowing who God is. Listen to me, listen to me. If you try to go about your life being all about you and I'm strong. Ladies, can I talk to you for a second? Can I just offend you just for a moment and then we'll pray and we'll be done, okay? But this idea of like, I'm strong, I'm capable, I have enough, I don't need anybody. Listen to me, is a lie from the pit of hell. You are a sinner in need of grace just like everybody in this room is and we need Jesus to save us.
The whole point is you couldn't do it on your own. That God's glory reveals that aspect to us. And this is the message that the world hates, but at the same time, it is the good news. I said this the first service. Do you know what would be so great to start a family holiday tradition in your family or anytime you receive a gift? If somebody gives you a gift, I think it would just be the most socially awkward thing. And I just think it'd be great for you to do this. Oh, thank you so much for this gift. I'm a sinner. (laughs) And people at your work party would be like, what are you talking about? Listen, I'm undeserving of this gift. This gift represents grace. And grace is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. And I'm reminded that when I receive things that I don't deserve, that the very essence of this season is that I am a sinner in need of grace. And what we see is that this glory, this Jesus, it exposes that. But the good news is this, that God's glory is seen in the cleansing of our sins. Listen, we're not just left... Listen, if we're just left with a God who is high and lifted up and the train of His robe filled the temple and ninja angels are flying around singing stuff, listen, that's not good news. That's not good news because we're woe is me. That God is not like me. I am a sinner. That God is perfect. And there's something that separates. So what happens? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So this is a scene in the temple. And back in the book of Leviticus, that book of the Bible that you skip every year in your Bible reading plan, in Leviticus we know what's going on in the temple. That there was a fire that was to burn 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And that fire was there on the altar. That scene whenever Charlton Heston has to scoop up the the burning hot coals so nobody else gets the disease and the judgment falls on them, Aaron goes to this altar and scoops up the coals. And it's on the altar where the sacrifice was. Do you see what all of this is foreshadowing and showing? And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this is touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. Now here's the kicker. And your sin atoned for. Do you know what the word atonement means? It means to pay. It means to pay. So here's something I couldn't do. Um, If there were two individuals up here and Bob and Larry had conflict between one another and Larry had sinned against Bob. By the way, I'm sorry if your name's Bob or Larry. It's just purpose of illustration. Larry and Bob, if Larry had sinned against Bob, do you know what I couldn't do? I couldn't say, hey, Bob, Larry is sorry and um, is asking for your forgiveness. Why couldn't I do that? Because I didn't commit the act. I don't owe the debt to Bob. You see, the only person that can reconcile is one of the two parties. And what we see happening here is that there is a holy God in the temple separated from a sinful humanity. But then there's something that bridges a gap. There is a payment that is made. And so listen, what does this mean for us? It means this. I don't care what your last name is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done that nobody knows about and that you feel like if those people found out about it that they would never love you. I'm telling you this, that God's glory is so awesome and so big that he gets glory when he forgives sinners of their sins. And that is good news for us in this holiday season. So what's the application I think the application is this. 
I also know that some of you are going to go to houses this season or send a card or make a phone call to somebody that has either sinned against you or you have sinned against them. And there's ought in the relationship. What is so compelling about this vision of God forgiving us of our sins? I think it's this. We don't only receive God's grace, we also extend God's grace. And so please, this holiday season, this Christmas season, may this glory be so compelling that it compels us not to settle for anything else. Do you know what the opposite of glory is in the scriptures? It's idolatry. Idolatry is giving to glory, giving glory to anything other than God himself. So, so if this season's about you, if it's just about your family or this, that, and the other, it's, it's an exchange. That glory will not be satisfying. But may this holiday season, may this Christmas season, may God's glory burn deep within our hearts. I love what Alexander McLaren said in closing about this passage in Isaiah 6. Let me recall to you what I've already insisted on more than once. That the perfecting of Isaiah's vision in these verses is the historical fact of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ shows us God. Jesus Christ is the King of glory. If we will go to Him and fix our eyes and hearts on Him, then losses may come and we shall be none the poor. Death may unclasp our hands from dear hands, but he will close a dear hand around our hand that is groping for a stay, and nothing can be taken away, and he will more than fill the gap it leaves by his own sweet presence. If our eyes behold this king, if we are like John the seer on the island of Patmos and see the Christ in his glory and royalty and he will lay his hand on us and say, fear not, weep not, I am the first and the last and forebodings and fears and sense of loss will all be changed into trustfulness and patient submission. Seeing him who is invisible, we shall be able to endure and to toil until the time when the vision on earth is perfected by the beholding of heaven. Blessed are you who with purged eyes see this Jesus. Oh, and with yielding hearts today, submit and obey to this glory, the heavenly vision, and turn to the King and offer ourselves for any service and say, as Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Long for the glory this Christmas, yearn for it, and don't settle for anything less than the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Westside, would you stand to your feet and pray how Jesus taught us to pray? Westside, lift your voices. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And if many of us in this room were honest, we are in a dark season in our life. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, 
And just like that man said, we are either waiting for doom or a breakthrough from heaven. God, may this season give us hope that you broke through heaven. That there is nothing that now separates us from God. Jesus Christ, the God-man, has made a way. God, I pray for us to not lose heart. God, I pray for marriages that they won't give up. I pray for any sickness and disease, God, that they would hang on and continue interceding and praying for healing. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. And may we just for a moment be transformed and behold the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in the holy, in the precious name of Jesus.